0: welcome back to between the liars with ryan josh hello everyone and marcello
1: Happy New Year. Hello, everyone.
0: And that is going to be your guest audience for today. Uh, kicking off the new year, we did take a one and a half, two week hiatus. It's good to be back. Honestly, it felt a lot longer to me than it probably was. Uh, today, today we're going to be discussing uh, January 6th. We'll discuss the House Committee investigating the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, attempting to stop the certification of the 2020 election. We're also planning on getting a little bit into uh, the commemoration that took place on January 6th, since we did get past that in 2020. 20- 2022 now. Before that though, we have some announcements. You can find us on Instagram, our Facebook page, Twitter, YouTube channel and we are occasionally on TikTok and I'll turn it over to Josh.
2: And as always, like you can today, you can find us streaming at noon central when we work out the scheduling. You can find that on Facebook and YouTube, but you can also find um, notifications and all the backlog of all of our episodes there too. As always, you know, we continually do have our stuff on Redbubble so if you're interested in that, please just go ahead and check it out. It's all fantastic stuff and and with that, we'll go ahead and promo our music some more with Marcelo.
1: Yeah, so as always, sorry, we have new music, and it's I was vibing to it before the show started as always. Uh, it's courtesy of Andrew Hensley over at Secret Spike Studio 865 Audio, and he's got a hot new single coming out uh, already out, titled Misty. It's available now on all major streaming platforms. So please, please check it out. Uh, it's great, and he does great, great stuff.
0: And if you're like me and you're lazy, and you like shortcuts, I have provided that for you on our channel. <laughs> so if you go to any of our socials and that little drop down where it's got all of our direct links to like YouTube and um, our podcast and stuff like that. I provided a direct link to Andrew's latest music. So you have no excuse not to listen to it. It's fantastic. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the overview. So January 6, 2020, I'm sure pretty sure most people are familiar with what happened, but basically the short version is after two weeks of Trump saying the election had been stolen with a group of rioters who stormed the Capitol trying to stop the certification of the 2020 election. Uh, this was not a good look when we're looking at a peaceful transfer of. Of power or a belief in kind of the democratic process voting process now here's the good news they were stopped and the election was certified by by Vice President Mike Pence and the Republicans who held the majority of the Senate Senate has to certify the election so the good news is democracy prevailed at the end Uh Marcel you want to talk to us a little bit about the aftermath though because there were several protocols and policies and things that were changed particularly on social media
1: yeah so uh, there was a lot of fallout and we'll get into it not as much follow as some of us would have liked in the the judicial sense but at least a lot of fallout in the court of public opinion so we had you know trump was bad for uh, twitter and facebook promptly after this happened uh parlor which is an alternative um sort of like more conservative less mainstream twitter was also uh, banned from Amazon web services so basically they couldn't host that anymore they were booted off that platform and multiple writers were arrested and prosecuted so there's has been some justice you know breaching a federal building hot tech it should probably should come with some consequences and you know at least in this case we've seen that some people who were there at the in this case on uh, the fbi has made some quick work of them so the, at least you know some things have happened and, and we're a year out so i think it's a great opportunity for us to take a look into what happened and, and see if You know, I wouldn't call it like if we're happy with the results, but like you know, like I I think. I'm very happy. And, you know, like you said, I'm very happy that these people were stopped. But I'm also like the fact that we got to this in the first place, you know, what's
0: up? The defining feature here is that the Department of Justice has prosecuted these people to the hilt, like just pierced them all the way through and as as they should be. I mean, if you're going to storm a federal building, damage, all that, then you should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, I believe. So that has been a huge uh, thing on the Department of Justice docket. I don't know that people have been sentenced yet, but they have been arrested. So they are awaiting their trial if not already on trial i'm not quite sure on that timeline
2: some of them have pled guilty um when charged um i'm not sure if anyone's gone to trial and it's been played out yet but i know there's been a few pleas entered and then i want to say about three days ago from the time of recording which is now january 15th the leader of the Oathkeeper group along with ten or nine other of his associates were picked up by the fbi and atf uh so there's been a decent amount of fallout on not only individuals but then some of the uh, organizations uh in particular oath keepers which is actually quite a good organization to nip while we can so it's great that the fbi were able to conduct investigation they charged the oath keepers with um i forget the exact phrasing it was um i want to say seditious acts or sed- seditious conspiracy that's what it was mm-hmm. because of uh the oath keepers are paramilitary extremist group and they had what they called um quick reaction teams according to the fbi's reports that they had stationed outside of DC on January 6th, sitting around with like trucks full of guns and ammunition ready to, you know, burn it into DC at the phone, you know, phone calls notice or radio calls notice. So it is quite interesting. And I think that's the overarching problem that people run into when thinking about the January 6th is the different levels of it. If you had people who were protesting outside that never entered the Capitol building, showed up to hear Donald Trump give a speech and other politicians and then went on their way. And then you had, you know, less than, you know, a couple of thousand probably get anywhere near dangerous. And then a few. 200 that maybe a thousand that entered into the capital grounds itself. Uh, and I think that's where it's it like hard to break down. There's where to consider each of those individual lines and how they play out.
0: The part that was particularly interesting to me is what you mentioned, Marcela, which was that Parler uh, was banned from Amazon Web Services because the the claims there was that because it was a tool that was used to plan. And from all available evidence, it seems that Facebook and Twitter were used a significant chunk and pretty much more. So I, I thought that that was an interesting move. It seemed like more of a justification to kind of eliminate an actual potential competitor as opposed to having like a legitimate reason. I don't know what you guys think on that, but that's at least the public appearance, I think, that can come across
1: I, I think so amazon web Services is obviously controlled by amazon they can do whatever they want because they're a public company and we really love i mean not public company private company we really love private companies here right so the fact that they're able to do that and to control so much of it is it problematic Sure. Do I like parlor? No, I like I think parlor is, is garbage, like hot garbage. And I'm glad it's gone. But it wasn't really that popular in the first place. So like I think, you know, it, is it a good business move? Yeah, probably. Were they looking for an excuse to ban this? Yeah, sure, as well. And I think much more important than just banning this platform that was used primarily for this purpose, I think cracking down even more and I and I know it took some steps, but Facebook and Twitter, you know, like you said, because they're more popular, they were used for this. Sort of planning as well, and so cracking down on those groups in their own platforms would probably be much more efficient than banning this one platform that was already super tiny. It was like very, very tiny, and I think it goes on, but you know, it's dented uh, by a lot. Uh, I remember like looking at the the likes and like important public opinion of figures on Parler, and it's like they get little to no engagement. So I guess it did its job, but it was it was not that big of a threat to begin with.
0: So then that that'll bring us to the a little bit further out aftermath you kind of had the immediate aftermath with aftermath which was Amazon web services took that down uh Trump was banned from Twitter to my knowledge pretty much immediately very shortly thereafter and then Facebook took a little bit longer after that and then you had the attempt to form the January 6th commission so there's been a little bit of like a semantics game I think with this because you've had the commission you've had the committee so the commission was what was proposed by Nancy Pelosi in early 2021 pretty close to right after the aftermath and she wanted like a what she. Called like a 9-11 type commission. And so they formed a bill, uh, forming the commission and that passed the house of representatives on May 19th with all Democrats and 35 Republicans voting in support of it. But then it was blocked by Senate Republicans on May 28th with 54 senators voting in favor and 35 voting against, which means they didn't meet their filibuster proof threshold. They needed 60 votes. So it died. So then my understanding was it moved on to the house committee. It was just the house instead of both the house and the Senate doing like an actual commission. It was just a committee. And what happens, in politics is you have special issue committees that are formed. You have a certain number of politicians who are placed on those, a chair who heads them, and then their job is pretty much to investigate this. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but my last understanding was that this was pretty much just a House committee, pretty much chartered to to investigate the communication and people involved outside the writers that have already been arrested.
1: Right, at least on that side. Yeah, the, the, the House Committee led by Representative Raskin, then that's, that's pretty much the, the, the main driver of, you know, from from the legislative side, that's the main driver of the investigation.
2: Yeah, the play there was to get the actions by the government into looking as a partisan act. Only 35 of the Republicans in the House and, you know, not many, I don't think any, maybe Mitt Romney supported the investigation uh, in the Senate. So the point was to try to make whatever comes out of the um, committee look partisan because Nancy Pelosi does have full control, even though Kevin McCarthy suggested members. She in the end has full control of the committee being the Speaker of the House, as she does with all of the committees, and said, no, I don't like these. And so she picked which Republicans she wanted on the committee out of the 35 Republicans who voted for the commission in the first place. So In that act of making sure it failed in the Senate, in my opinion, it was a strategic defense to already slant whatever the committee comes out and finds and say, no, this is just a partisan hack because this is just one party acting unitarily and there's no bipartisanship here. But it's very clear that Republicans were the ones who weren't willing to come out and play to fully investigate and, you know, find out what happened here and what was the involvement of people working at the Capitol and other government officials, you know, and what happened that day. I
0: think this is an interesting spot that we might want to camp out in just for a minute and kind of talk about like, what is the political partisan nature? Because there's something to be said, and you just mentioned it, Josh, Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker. the House is the one who gets to determine not only what special interest groups get committees, but who is on those committees. The controlling party gets to decide who is on what committees and basically what power that they they have, what are their duties, and who is on those. Which means, if Republicans in the House vote... For these committees, then they are voting to give the power of that delegation over to the other party. And I think that that's as much as Nancy Pelosi played it up as you know, this, we, we want this to be partisan, at the end of the day, or bipartisan, rather, at the end of the day, it is partisan, because it is her committees that will be taking place. So I think that that creates almost this disincentivization for Republicans to go along with this, because if they're worried about how this is going to play out, then they're not going to want to give them that control control.
1: It's a lot easier, I think, to be in opposition. Like not easier as in like being in that in, in you yeah, know in, in that seat. But you know, I think Pelosi benefits from Republicans voting against or for it. If they vote for it, then she gets the power. If they vote against it, then she gets you know, like Josh said, she has to just You know, it's on the record. All of these Republicans voted against this that we're planning as bipartisan, and she did get some bipartisan support. So it's like it's not like nobody was against it. Right. Nobody was for it. So it's I mean, it's it's politics, right? It's it's, yep. it's just it's just a game. I can see what people would be where Republicans would be against something like this but at the same time I think it it, it shook everyone in the House enough that you know, like most things that pass like this that are controversial like get a little to no Republican votes and this got, you know, a a, a big chunk of of them. Yeah,
0: it it was definitely a win-win situation for Nancy Pelosi and the other House Democrats because it's a win for them because they get to control what goes through with this committee. They are the ones who are in charge and whether they choose to do that in a way that benefits both parties or slants towards them is kind of a, a mood issue at that point. Like they get the control. And it investigates something that very much did not look good for Republicans who happened to be involved in the riot, right? So then I think one of the other concerns was, well, who is going to be kind of lumped in together with that? Are you going to say that anyone who was at the rally is on par, right? The the other side of this is that any Republican who votes against it, it can be made out now to look like they're in favor of those riots. Right. So that's that's kind of why it's a win win, because one way or the other, the House Democrats have control and they definitely had um the other party kind of kind of by the fingers
2: well and i also think for a lot of the republicans talking points this was really problematic because they like to go around and be like you know we're the party of law and order well now they tried to overthrow what is an election that has had no significant fraud by any verifiable evidence time and time and time and time again and so it's very clear that this was just a broad-based full stop of lie to the public just for a political gain with nothing else. You can't lie about the results of an election and claim to have the American people's best interest at heart. The election is the American people's best interest, full stop always. Let people d- make dumb voting decisions. That's the whole point, to ma- let them make dumb voting decisions. It's curious enough that a dumb voting decision, you know, caused us to be in this incident to where that our voting system was under attack, but nonetheless, here we are. So it undermines that like aspect they play, but I think also in the nature of the committee and the Democrats are being like, you know, we need to enforce the law and make sure our capital is protected and our institutions respected. They get a lot of traction there with a lot of the more independent, moderate type folks who are concerned with appearances like that. And they get to now come into 2022 and be like, the Republicans don't want to protect our government itself. They, you know, They're willing to let Capitol Police be undermined and sieged and beaten. This is the party of law and order. And so Hillary Clinton experienced this with Benghazi committees that go on for a really, really long time can be really impactful. In the political arena and so i would expect the democrats to take their time getting us these results they're going to like declassify a section by section we're going to be hearing about this all the way up till november and it's going to inkling out like that they're not going to let this go
1: they really were given like and i'm not saying you know for the record i already said it once i'll say it again this was not a good thing right generally it was not a good thing for anyone it seems like it was a really good opportunity anyways for democrats to to, to talk about this and, and you know and, and to like Josh said to track this out in a way this might be the place to bring it up but Josh you know has talked about the idea of like the law and order and like how that has been framed in the presence of an attack on the Capitol I've seen a lot of Democrat messaging not from supporters but from like institutional Democrats support uh for police like you know they, they did the whole ceremony with like the police officers and like the like the brave police who uh, in their words like defended the Capitol against the people who were trying to in and so that's sort of like in a way co-opted the messaging of the republicans as well because republicans have traditionally been more in the side of like you know fund the police is more uh, like in line with democrats messaging than with the republicans so i think that has also like shifted grounds a little bit not that i think it's a good idea i, I don't i don't think democrats should be praising cops that much but you know what it's it's their party
0: yeah i think i mean th- this has been i don't know the, the way that you hear the democratic party talking about this every time that they'd go on the campaign trail or every time they visit a state like as Joe Biden's been doing, it's almost presented as though the world started turning when Donald Trump entered office and it stopped the moment that we had January 6th. And I mean, it, it is a prime piece of material for them because it it was not a good look uh, for their opponents at that point. And so I'm not blaming them for doing this, but I think that you're, you're going to have a very difficult time convincing people that this is not merely a political game when it's kind of the only main piece that you're, you're harping on when it comes to any reason to vote for this party, I think is it's really what they've been
2: focusing on. I think about uh, Hillary Clinton and the emails and Benghazi, which were related to each other. They made not only a whole year committee about it, then Kevin McCarthy said in an interview uh, to a journalist, you know, after the commission came back and they were like, all good here, everything's clear. And he was being interviewed like, hey, didn't this go wrong? And he was like, no, have you seen Clinton's poll numbers? And this was before Hillary Clinton was even running for office, but he knew what he was doing with, with oh, yeah. the Benghazi commission. So This, this is not
0: that's... one party, absolutely. Like, I you know, I, I yeah. agree with you. It's uh, This is, just a, this
2: is this is staple politics. It is, which
0: is unfortunate because who gets hurt? The people, right? Because it's, it is the people that they're supposed to be serving, right? If if you're not giving me a reason to vote for people at that point, you're giving me a reason not to vote for somebody else, which means you have a very low bar for anyone in politics right now. I I feel like there's a good chunk of people right now who are hanging onto their seats because they say, well, I'm not X, Y, or Z person, which is really unfortunate for us.
1: But if you're talking about like strategies coming to like, you know, the midterms, the Democrats have failed and, you know, not, no less important the Republicans' lack of cooperation, but, like, you know, they passed the infrastructure bill, but that was supposed to be a deal to pass Build Back Better. Yep. Build Back Better has not passed. It's nowhere close to being passed. Uh, you know, like, M- mansion and cinema, whatever, you know, like, you insert 10 things about Build Back Better that we've already talked about. But, you know, in terms of, like, political wins, the Democrats are really hurting for something. And that might be a reason why they're also pushing so much for the January 6th stuff. Because it's a lot easier to get people riled up about, like, hey, you know, these evil Republicans who try to kill please don't put them into office then for them to acknowledge and say yes we promise you child tax credit we promised you all of these i think things that we should pass you know like that 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 should really improve material conditions for people in in the us and they have you know they have not done it Yet, so and if they if they don't do it by the time elections come, they're gonna have a really hard time convincing people to, to vote for them again.
0: Yeah, I I think Democrats are definitely hurting, not only for material, but I, I really think they're gonna take a bruising in the midterm elections. That's normally the case of the party of the president. Like we we see that the House and the Senate tend to switch back to the opposing party, and then that creates gridlock. And I mean, my personal opinion, the less government actually can do, the safer the American people are, just because of the way they tend to operate when they are gridlocked. I feel like. like. Like that's the safest place for the American people to be. That's kind of off topic, but it is not uncommon for those parties to flip flop. Usually the party that is the party of the president takes a pretty severe beating because we associate most of the things that go wrong, whether accurately or not. I would argue that with a lot of the agendas that Biden has pushed, I think that he has been one of the major mechanisms causing for the stagnation and inflation that we've seen. And people feel that and they take it out in the polls and they're going to take it out on the party that they can That's going to be the congressional rather than the presidential office here in the
1: midterms. Should we go back to January 6th for a little bit and talk about, you know, because like a lot of, I think something that is trending and it's going to be trending, you know, all the way up to, I guess, forever, uh, is that many of the people who are being allegedly, you know, like in the court of public opinion, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, like Josh Hawley, like other like representatives who are in office right now and were allegedly, you know, part of this plot to overturn the election and these people are not you know they could be tried i guess eventually but while they're not being held accountable for any of this they're also in office right they are still public officials and i think that's why elections play such a big part in this is that these people who are already in office are going to be running again and so you know it comes back to elections and like should we hold these people responsible for the things that they did or that they said
0: why don't we outline a little bit what were the things that they said that you would think that they should be held accountable for if we could start there just for those who might not be aware
1: Right. So I think a lot of the inflammatory language around the election, and you can you can start, you know, not even in January, you can start in like November or December, is that repeated claims that the elections, the election was stolen, which was not. And like a lot of this, you know, it, it, it didn't happen in January 6. Like this had been planned. A long time in advance of like people just being very dissatisfied with the way things have been going, and so one is a lot of misinformation, you know, like repeatedly public officials not being convinced with the results of the election, and then just bring it up at every possible time, you know, and then Fox News and newsmax until they started to start retracting for fear of legal repercussions. But I just think. In, in general, is I, again, I don't, I'm not saying that they should go to jail for this. Well, maybe, but like very specifically, for like, you know, I, I do think that there should be some kind of repercussions for people just saying things that are not true. You know, like if, if you go on live TV and say election was stolen and it is not stolen, then there should be something that, especially if you're a public official, right? If like if your own congressperson is telling you that the election was stolen, then what am I supposed to do? Right? Like, what am I supposed to believe in?
2: Yeah, I definitely think that's a, a key part of it is those who participated in the repeating of the lie that the election was fraudulent from a public official office when they had access to, you know, classified documents and could make a quick phone call down to the, you know, if a senator wanted to find out about a state election, it's just a telephone call to someone's office assistant. And, you know, I'm sure that could be resolved quickly in a meeting, you know, you're a U.S. senator, you can have access to whatever documents you want to. I'm sure they'll be happy to provide, any other government agency would be happy to provide them for a senator. So it's definitely difficult for it to be then in this position of where these people are just willingly, I mean, Ted Cruz is not a dumb person. He's got advanced degrees from nice institutions. We know he can think, guy even had a national championship in debate while he was in his college years. Guy can think, he knows he's lying to the public. If he doesn't, then he's somehow lost a lot from what he had before. But there's only two options here for Cruz. Either we omit, you know, he's just playing up people's fears for the sake of political game and willing to, you know, do whatever it takes, even if it undermines the democratic institution our country is founded upon or he's just absolutely gone off his rocker neither of them are great but it's more likely that he's so aware of the reality around him and he's just willingly lying to the public and there is kind of this apprehension towards a lot of the politicians who went to rallies you know on the media from because even donald trump before the election was saying you know i don't know if i'll accept the results of the election i'll have to see how it is that's how he's always been i don't know if i'll accept the republican party not nominating me i I might run third party if it's not me. And he was running in 2016, I don't know if I'll accept the results of the election if I lose. 2020, I don't know if I'll accept the results of the election if I lose. He's always quite literally been saying this the entire time. He's been telling us what he was going to do. Like if he loses, he was going to call fraud and do whatever it took to stay in power. It's he said that since the Republican Party primary debates. So we can't be too surprised, you know, that this came out of his politics. You know, it's been a, a cornerstone of it. But the fact that a lot of these elected officials are willing to go along with it and betray their oaths of office to me is just incredible. How can you lie to the country like that? to your constituents like that. That's just unbelievable.
0: I have a split opinion on this. It's inexcusable and problematic when a politician does something like this. I think it's better that they be held accountable in the court of public opinion as Marcelo mentioned, than say a legal avenue because anytime you want to enforce something in a legal avenue, it becomes very tricky. I also don't think that someone saying that an election has been stolen automatically means the death of democracy. I mean, this, this has been going back and forth between the parties parties since time began. I mean, the party that loses is the party that says the election was stolen. There was fraud. Like, there's going to be this emphasis, and it, 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 I think, winds up going back to human nature. I mean, I saw a satirical article that said that the results of an election being accepted and the party being put in power are are highly correlated with each other. Like, we we see, unfortunately, that's not really satire at this point. That's that's a sad fact of the matter. I mean, Stacey Abrams lost the Georgia gubernatorial race by over 50,000 votes, still claims to be the governor, and she was heralded by the DNC leading up to the 2020 election as the rightful governor of georgia like that's that's problematic i don't think that means the death of democracy i think it's irresponsible i think that it's an outright lie when politicians do this and i think it's incredibly problematic when it's grounded in the institution but i don't think that it means the inherent death of democracy i don't think that it means that these people need to be held necessarily legally accountable i think that there's there's levels and i think the court of public opinion swung against donald trump and other Republicans who perpetuated the lie that the election had been stolen. So I think, in a way, it tends to handle itself.
1: I think it self-corrects to a point. But I think when it stops being in the court court of public opinion is when you take these ideas behind, like, you know, your predisposition to believe that the election was stolen, your predisposition to believe that the elections are unfair, and you take it and then you put it into, like, actual laws, like preemption laws. And and I, I see preemption laws a lot in my job mainly talking about you know a whole different area which is like fossil fuels right but like preemption laws have been have become really popular if they were not already in state legislatures to prevent the federal government from trying to get them to do something so in the case of like you know florida put in preemption laws to like you know for mass mandates stuff like that or you know mass mandates have been preemption laws uh like I said, fossil fuels have prevention laws. And then now in like in in certain states, you're also seeing the voting rights and like different voting registration, like voter IDs, the deadlines, mail-in ballots, all of those are also getting very specific sets of laws that are just trying to like, you know, in the name of like preserving the integrity of the elections are also doing something. And, you know, I hate to be the guy, but it's also like a little both sidesy in this case. Because if you see the Democrats trying to push in a couple of days, they're going to try to push the voting rights bill on MLK Day. And if you're a Republican, and you're like, well, that's unfair. You know, if they stole the election, like if I believe that they stole the election, then they're just trying to secure their their steal. And then if I'm a Democrat, I'm doing this in the name of democracy. Yep. And then the Republicans are probably doing their own stuff in the name of democracy too. So they're not only talking about it, they're actually doing something about yep. it and then put it in into law.
0: Well, and January 6th, uh, the commemoration has been the springboard for that, you know, because the, the claim has been, we need to preemptively prevent democracy from being stolen, right? Because they've said, look at what happened on January 6th. This is all Republicans Sworn office, look at X, Y, and Z person who supported it. This is not the anomaly. We need to pass legislation that is going to. And, and really, I think it's interesting that they've called it election reform because it's it's not reform. It's federalization. It's basically making all local and state elections federalized. And and that's a very. I mean, we could have a whole discussion over that. But like you're saying, Marcelo, what they're trying to do is they're trying to push massive, sweeping changes. The Republicans are trying to stop it, not wanting it to happen because they said, well, the election was stolen. And Democrats are saying, well, January. So I, I think it's really important that we understand that this is a non-unique party issue. It goes both ways. And you're going to have different instances for both. Um, and I think that it's interesting to me how it becomes more about the the power grab. How can I switch from X, Y, or Z event over to a justification for the legislation that I would like to pass?
2: I mean, we can hand it out to be a little both sidesy, but we have to face some fundamental realities going on, though, of like, and I know this is going on in Tennessee as well. Some states are passing um, elector laws. So when it comes to um, electing a president, you know, the people don't actually elect a president, you elect, you know, inside of your state and they send electors off to go vote. Some states, a lot of states, are currently working through legislation that is going to allow the legislator to basically say, we're concerned about the results of our election. We don't care about what the secretary of state says inside of the state or the election commission inside of our state, we as the legislator are concerned. And because of that, we are going to give ourselves the authority to send electors as we deem fit, faithful to the election based on our interpretation. And that will allow the legislator to replace whatever the state vote is and send the electors to the electoral college that they want to, regardless of what happens. On the fundamental level of we're concerned about the integrity of the election and we're the legislator and we get to do what we want. And so a lot of Republican states are doing this because they saw what happened in Georgia. Sometimes the vote doesn't go your way. Well, if the state legislator in Georgia, who is also one of the states who is passing, uh, working on getting this law through, will basically be allowed to replace their electors from another party as they deem fit, regardless of the outcome of the election, so long as the sitting state party is concerned. And that's all it's going to take to overturn a democratic election is concern from the ruling party in a state. There's only one party proposing those bills in this country, and it's the Republican Party at the state house level. Only one party. So there is like both sides, and I'm sure like both sides can always claim fraud. We could even go back and say, look at what, you know, Look at Gore. You know, Look at Bush. Look at how the Democrats always get upset about the Electoral College, and we can say that's a part of it. But fundamentally, no, it's not. This comes down to one party's trying to make sure people are able to vote, and another party's putting forth legislation to subvert votes. There's no comparison, in my opinion, there either you're afraid of what the people will vote for or you're not. There's only two types of politicians. Um, and it I'll, seems to, to me like the Republicans are really afraid of what people might actually vote for.
1: I'll, I'll back on that. And yes. And I said that I, w- I was going to hate to be that guy and I do hate being the guy that brought up the both sides thing because if you're looking at two parties passing legislation that aligns with their views, then yeah, you know, it, that that is you can put them as equivalent. But I think where the distinction falls apart is when you get into the integrity like of what the bills are actually doing. Like in, in one case Case, like the, the preemption the Republicans are trying to pass to try to again preempt a lot of these reforms from happening and on the other side like you know universal mail-in ballots I like that a lot I think that's that's, that's kind of nice uh, and so so it's it's a lot of like yes they're both parties trying to pass things that will benefit them ideally but I'm much more in the on the side of one that is trying to make everything much more universal you know with all of the bad things that it might come because I, I do think that it outweigh it the benefits outweigh them
2: so and to be fair making it universal is the Supreme Court's recommendation after they struck down Clause 4 of the Voting Rights Act of 65 because it only surveyed 13 of these states and not all 50. And in 2011, it was sued at the Supreme Court level. I forget what the docket title was, but uh, Article 4 of the Voting Rights Act struck down, which was the enacting clause, which meant no investigation could be launched by the Department of Justice on voting rights uh, for for particular instances to enforce the Voting Rights Act. So it's basically like the Voting Rights Act faded off the books to a significant degree Uh, with the ability to enforce it. And the Supreme Court's reason for striking it down was that it unfairly penalized 14 states and all 50. And so they told the federal government, please return with an all 50 states bill. And so the Supreme Court backs, you know, the, the legislation and the ideas behind the voting rights and the control that the federal government had over it. They just got tired after, you know, 40 years of it only targeting a certain number of states. Because they were punitively enacted on southern states. You know, they couldn't change their election laws without the federal Department of Justice clearing it for 40 years. We punished the southern states for that. And so the federal government has often had to be that agent of kind of enforcement to make sure people can vote because when it's left up to that non-federalized level, you see what the state governments will do. And we see, you know, once the Voting Rights Act fell in 2011, there was some like 60-odd voting rights changes made in the southern 13 states in the span of like 10 months. And quite literally millions of Americans lost their ability to vote in those 10 months. So that, and then to me, that's a significant foul. Like you can't just deprive people of, of their right to vote vote because it partisanly benefits you and pretend that's the same as trying to get people more to vote. No, that's just corruption and totalitarianism, that you're only want certain people to vote because they'll give you the policies they want to vote rather than just embracing what the public actually wants.
0: So what you mentioned earlier, Josh, about sending different slates of electors. To me that that's that's pretty troubling if that goes through. If that goes through, you know, you you can't just override the will of the people. What's interesting is that recently, in the midst of the discussion and kind of the back and forth trying to reform the election, as the Democrats have been saying, Republicans as a counteroffer proposed a bill that would make it penalizable for states who did exactly what you just mentioned, and said if they just wipe the will of the people and send in a different slate of electors, they should be penalized, and the Democrats wouldn't vote for that. So, if, to me, like, that's that's a huge issue if a state is going to send their own slate of electors, if there's legislation that is on the floor, or if people just want to send in legislators just that they want now with represent the people. That's a huge issue. And I think right now there's a bigger concern about that happening than there is about say some of the smaller things that are on the the proposed bill to reform the election stuff like drop boxes and things like that. Like I don't think that there's evidence for severe voter suppression. As minimal as the evidence is for voter fraud, evidence of voter suppression is That's even factually more scary. not
2: true. It is. That is fact. No, that is factually not true. My minor in, at, at Middle Tennessee State was in Political science and civil rights and voting rights history—that is not true. That is one are of the most talking- egregious things you said. Like, <laughs> you said on this show, Ryan. Are we that talking so, so b- far badly? Not true. Millions of people every year are denied the the chance to vote. Millions of people every year are denied the chance to vote. So, let's you know what they're talk- called? They're called felons. Okay, and there's a legal standard for that, Josh. So,
0: like, you can't broadly take yeah, this idea that just there make are up
2: reasons to to deny people. Josh, they vote. were. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. If if you're a felon and you've lost your right to vote, you were convicted in a court of law. Do you know if? You're like there's a process. Um, uh, uh, any amount of marijuana in Mississippi makes you a felon. Is possessing any amount of marijuana worth losing your voting rights over?
0: That's a question for them, Josh.
2: <laughs> so, that, but is that not voter suppression using some minor penalty about the law that's normally just a weekend in jail and a civil fine to strip someone's voting rights away for life? So, is that really okay? There being an issue is not with voter the suppression?
0: process and it being voter suppression can be two separate
2: things. It can it's be racialized as... policing and over policing of neighborhoods to target a specific. Specific demographic with drug crimes, not voter suppression. I
0: think you would have to not- show the actual stats that
2: that's the case. Like you, you this can't. A great book called um, <laughs> the New Jim Crow that looks at how the Thirteenth Amendment didn't outlaw slavery because it looks at how the Thirteenth Amendment allowed slavery in the conditions of prison, and then so we created a system of mass incarceration, and then we created a system of where everything that used to be enforceable by Jim Crow you can now put on a felon. You can deny a felon a bank loan. You can deny a felon housing application. You can deny a felon a job. You can deny a felon. A welfare. You could deny a felon the right to vote. Everything that Jim Crow was designed to do. And then we have a police system that racially targets a specific demographics of people and brands them all as felons for life to lose the right to votes and so, over-polices and racially profiles certain neighborhoods. Like, what do you mean there's no match Josh, at face value, the assertion that
0: felons and the plight that African Americans suffered through in Jim Crow America is on the same tier as factually offensive. Because Jim Crow law prevented Black Americans from entering the same building, drinking out of the same water fountains. There are no laws that prevent felons from entering the same building as non-people in the same way that black people were. So to compare and say that their loss of civil liberties and rights is the same, that's not only incorrect, that is downright
2: offensive. Like, you you cannot say that. I mean, so... It doesn't matter that the government set up a way to systematically deny a group of people of rights. And sure, they can't do it with the same ec- efficacy. They can't do it with the same precision because we outlaw Jim Crow. So they make this nice, generic, brand old, big scheme of it sounding, so they can play it off as neutral acting. But then we look at the results and say, why do the why do the police target certain neighborhoods? Why do they pull over more people than a certain demographics than other? Why do they behave in certain ways? Why does our justice system let go more white people than it does black and brown people when it comes to convict? when it comes to arrest, when it comes to even being pulled over by the police in the first place. And then the consequence of this is to lose your ability to participate in democracy. And it's a racialized system of justice that came into being after a racialized system of segregation and voter suppression. And one of the key things this, that this new system does is allow segregation and voter suppression, and it's targeted at certain communities intentionally. That's a tough pill for me to swallow and say this is just an accident. But
0: an unequal outcome, Justice. John- is not the same as a racist system. If you can show that a certain group of people winds up falling into a category more than others, that doesn't automatically mean that the system itself we can. We can is show over suppression. We
2: can show, we can show profiling. We can show broken uh, we can show like stop and frisk. We can show broken windows policing. We can show, I, I think again, the, the biggest representation is going to be that we know general crime statistics are the same throughout all demographics and all populations and that our arrests don't match up with it means that the police are engaging with the behavior that that allows it to be possible. Um, Why don't you know, why aren't there more drug raids on frat houses on university campuses? But they don't go bother the peop- the rich white people paying $3,000 a month to live in the frat house. No, they just get to do coke for free in the bathroom. Like, everyone knows what's going on in a frat house. Police never come there. No, they're, they're over in the apartment complex three streets over.
0: I think you're oversimplifying the
2: situation.
0: You have to be careful. If you're actually going to run with statistical analysis, then you have to account for all of the demographic information. You can't take a single piece of information. Let's Say in this case, what you're running with is the racial identity of these people and just correlate it there and then say, boom, this is causation. Like you, you the things you have to account for when you're looking at conviction rates and felon rates and things like that, you're gonna to have to look at what was the crime, what was the state, what was the charge, what was their prior conviction, like what is their their history? Like there are so many things you can't just say boom voter suppression.
2: Yeah, There are whole books on this, um and the whole meta studies and analysis and whole like legal studies, like critical race theory came out of Legal studies for a reason. Like that is where critical race theory started. It came from legal studies because, like, it looked at like where intersectionality came from. Was looking at when black when this black woman sued her company and said, "I'm being discriminated against." And the company came to the came to the judge and said, "No, here are black men supervisors. Here are white women supervisors. We're not discriminating on the basis of gender or race here in our in our company." And the defense said, "But there are no black woman supervisors." And so I am being discriminated on the intersection of my identities intersectionality and critical race theory are legal theories for a reason
0: i'm still going to stand by the fact that if you take a single demographic and you just run with a correlation you can find an unequal outcome and run with it then that's a garbage way of running statistics i think we're going a little bit away from january 6 we should probably take it back uh i feel like this is a bit deep for the last 10 minutes that we've got left in this segment but uh Marcella, what are your I'll, thoughts on <laughs> january 6 we'll take well, it back
1: <laughs> Yeah, and and I'm sure we'll come back to this because, you know, voting rights and, you know, systemic racism It's a good topic, it's just off of the 6th So on on January 6th, I feel like you know, just like, just lump everything together and then just like, you know, take it home is, we already talked about the political fallout in in, in some ways, like what's going to happen after this Um, and I just want a little space for me to just, you know, we've we've talked about how this was an opportunity and this has been used by Democrats to sort of like well, not only like get political points, but also like paint this picture of like, they're like the defending democracy in a way I also think it's sort of like a wasted opportunity in in, in many ways for, for Democrats that so they should have done way more than they actually did, and they should continue to do more. And I know why they haven't done as much is because, like Josh said, they want to drag this out. Like, if they got all of the convictions done in like three months, then nobody will be talking about it anymore. If they drag it out, it's more effective for them. Again, they're the ones who got elected, not me. They're the ones with the rich donors, not me. So I guess their their opinions matter more than mine. But for what it's worth, I do think that a lot of the things that they've been saying and and they've been acting, especially on making this January 6th such a big deal I think we've already talked about the 9-11 comparison that it's like they want to make this attack on democracy this huge media moment with like a lot of like the like you know that they have the ceremony where like you know limono miranda comes and, and sings like they want to have like the ceremony with, with all the cops whatever you know like they, they, they want to have all of these things to sort of like paint this and sort of drive the point home that this was dangerous and this was important and that they were affected and harmed I don't know if that truly wins them any points with anybody (laughs) like like the republicans are going to look at this and say you know come the measurements are going to be like you know the democrats are are overreacting right like you know this was either it was an attack on democracy or it was just like a protest and you know you can't really have your cake and eat it too and it's like i think most republicans are going to be like either this was not our fault or democrats are overreacting so they're not going to win any points there democrats just want health care (laughs) <laughs> Democrats just want like something to 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 vote on that is not like if I could vote I wouldn't vote on like you know like sure the song that they play was really nice but I'm not gonna vote on them based on that I'm gonna vote on them based on the tangential like material condition improvements that they're gonna bring to people and they don't have any of that I just think that they're sort of chasing this golden goose in a way that I don't know how, how it's gonna play out and I guess I guess we'll see right because it's not that far away but I think the January 6th should have best been served as a quick opportunity to get some political opponents out of the way and then just focus and concentrate on what's ahead which is the elections and trying to get people to who care about the party more than the people who are in the party.
0: I think politicians have a vested interest in keeping things that make them look better or their opponents look worse alive for all eternity. (laughs) I mean, Josh mentioned earlier, you mentioned it, Marcello. This is going to be leaked out slowly over time. Any, I mean, as of, as of today, I mean, there's not a whole lot as far as information goes on what's been going on, right? They were like, okay, we've subpoenaed some things from X, Y, and Z corporation for correspondence. Uh, We've got X, Y, and Z person where they've, they've gone after, um, I believe so far, Donald Trump's like text exchange correspondence. Interestingly, Nancy Pelosi is not complying with the commission that she has wanted to put in place. So as I've understood it, sorry. Sergeant at Arms requires her permission to release the correspondence. The committee wants her correspondence that day as they're getting everyone's correspondence and she's not doing it. Specific Republicans aren't releasing it. I feel like there's a lot of people just in general who don't want their correspondence for one reason or another out there. And this is going to be dragged out for a very long time, I think, particularly by Democrats, especially with what's been going on. Stagnation, inflation. We've got a lot. I mean, people are feeling the hurt right now. They're not particularly thrilled with our government, by and large. Democrats need it out. I think that you're exactly right, Marcelo. They're definitely going to drag this out.
2: Yeah, I think both as just like as political excess is like a place to invest a lot of like pent up energy. The Democrats are going to definitely take that opportunity. I also think it's a way to try to reframe of like when they are in the battleground states, you know, battling over 30 or 40,000 votes, you know, of, you know, independents and moderates, you know, to get them to come out and vote of a way of trying to more further torch the middle ground and basically be like, we're the only ones left standing on the island. You got to come with us because of what they're doing over there. And, and I think that's, you know, another like key part of this tactic uh, is to not only like give their own party that chance to invigorate and rile themselves up onto this, but to uh, kind of burn that center and move them left.
0: All right. We will be right back with our hot takes.
2: And we're back. I'll turn it over to Josh. Um, not only are prisons bad as a whole, but people should be allowed to vote while they are in prison. And the government making up any reason to deny you your right to have a say over it is inherently dangerous because if they can do it to one of us, they can do it to any of us. The government should have no say over who can and cannot participate inside of a democracy and, and who can and cannot hold the leaders of their country accountable. That's messed up. They don't get to set their own limits of their own accountability. We do that for them. So in that instance, you know, we have a party that's afraid of what the people is and is increasingly passing restrictions. Voting measures, cutting down on the number of polling locations, cutting down on poll hours, cutting down on the length of early voting, cutting down on absentee voting, putting more requirements on absentee voting, opposing mail-in ballots, even though they safely work in two of our states and several countries around the world. And there's another party trying to protect people's voting rights. And then there's another party trying to make it easier to vote, trying to make it more accessible to the uh, sick and ill and the elderly who don't leave their homes that often or can't leave their homes that often to make sure that they have fair access to their elections, as is guaranteed, you know, as is promised to them. So So to me, we could put aside a lot of other uh, political issues because I'm always willing to take a very quick and dirty alliance on the stance of no authoritarians. And so that makes voting rights to me a very cut and dry issue. Either you're in it or you're not. You're either a tyrant, afraid of the people, or you're a democratic leader. There's, in my opinion, quite literally no in-between. Opposition to voting rights is opposition to the fundamental notion, a dream of America, even if our founders didn't make it, even if our founders didn't really want it. And the documents they laid out, then the documents that became our government that inspired us to create and keep working to make a more perfect union, to make our country better. The backbone of that we've learned is democracy and opposition to that, in my opinion, is wholeheartedly unacceptable in America.
0: So my first hot take is going to be that calling it election reform is a bit of a misnomer. It's nationalization and it is designed specifically with language that makes it so that people who oppose things that you can point out problems in, and I'll get to that in a second, that you can be castigated as an individual who is against the rights, of people to vote, who is in favor of voter suppression, who is in favor of rigging elections. The things that Josh just mentioned specifically, like mail-in ballots, drop boxes, early voting, those were expanded greatly for COVID. And those were a great thing for an emergency that we were going through at the time. That wasn't something that was designed to be, or in my opinion, should be carried out for all eternity. And a lot of the election reform that has been taking place by the Republican Party that Josh has been mentioning has been dealing with things like reducing the amount of mail-in ballots because people can go vote in person reducing the amount of drop boxes because they're not as secure we're not in the same state of pandemic emergency that we were early voting you don't need to be voting two, three, four months ahead of an election a lot can change as we saw in the last couple of days so a lot of the republican shoring up of the elections that Josh mentioned has to deal with we expanded a lot of these because of the pandemic and now we're just trying in many instances to go back to the status quo not all of that is true some of the things that you mentioned Josh like like the changing electors and stuff. If that's on the ballot, that should be shut down because that's a problem. But you can't just take any change to election and say that that means that you are in favor of the downfall of democracy. So my second hot take here is that Democrats need January 6th for the 2022 midterm elections or else they're going to take a huge whooping. Personally, I think that with where the state of the country is at and because they are the party of the president, it's historically likely to happen anyway. But as of right now, Democrats have accomplished virtually nothing since taking control of the White House and Congress. I mean, they control all of the legislature. They, can, they have the majority party in both the House and the Senate, and they're not passing legislation that is middle-of-the-road moderate enough to get even their two outlying party members on board with it. And it can be blamed on the Republicans not cooperating. But at the end of the day, the Democrats need January 6th because they're not being productive in Congress like they were put in there to be. So they need to bring up this idea that all Republicans who are in office and who vote for these people people... people in office are in favor of, say, January 6th riot. When you have a state of perpetual crisis, you can justify just about anything. We have a health crisis. There needs to be emergency efforts taken. If there's a voting rights crisis, um, anytime you could tie a crisis to something, that's become the buzzword of language because you can justify a lot of things that most people wouldn't stomach. And because it's a crisis, that language means that we need to pass this and you are standing in the way. And so you are in favor of the crisis. I would caution people, don't buy into the idea that all of these things at face value are true or at face value that they're going to be necessary and good. Uh, these things should be debated. Mail-in ballots, drop boxes, early voting, changes to the election reform. You can't just call it election reform and assume that it's good. You need to have a discussion on it. And quite frankly, our congressional members are not having those discussions. So that's that's my last hot
1: take. So yes, felons should be able to vote. And, and that's the hardest take that I'm going to take. Everyone, you know, serial killers, they should vote too. I don't care. That's my hottest take of the whole thing. I think in general, we're going to be having a lot of these. I think this is a great first episode of 2022. Because we're gonna be talking a lot about voting in the coming sessions. I think it's I think it's great. I think we're gonna be talking a lot about who can vote and white people vote and all of that. So I think this is a great preamble to to the whole discussion. That said, I think specifically for January 6th, the the biggest my biggest takeaway, my biggest hot take out of all of this is that I think Democrats have bounded themselves to this issue so much. I really hope that they are able to figure out something else because this is not going to get them that many votes. But I already said that. I think that the harder take would be, I really don't care about, I mean, I do care about the representatives, but I. you're not going to convince anybody that much that like, you know, like, oh, like my feelings were hurt. Like, oh, like my, like, you know, they went into our offices, you know, like that was very dangerous. It was very dangerous. But at the same time, if you want to convince people to vote for you, you're going to need something stronger than that on the side of the election reform. I'll just say that, you know, and this is a really wish, wishful thinking, but I, I just wish they could just vote on this Separately. And I I'm, i think I don't, I'm not usually the one who brings this solution up, but it's like, if they could just say, you know, universal mail-in ballots, vote yes or no, uh, vote yes or no, and this, instead of like packaging everything together, I feel like people would be a lot more clear on what side people are on instead of bundling everything together into one big act and giving just this name. Because, you know, if you voted against the Patriot Act in 2001, it's like, oh, you're not patriotic enough. And so like, I think in in, in many ways, calling these bills this name also just becomes very antagonistic in a way even though I agree, with, I agree with one side much more than the other that's a conversation for another time
0: and we will definitely be back with those conversations alright I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars join us next week noon central Saturday we're gonna to try to keep it on that track for as long as we can and then eventually come back when we deviate off but thank you all for joining us goodbye for now